0: Welcome to Heaven and Earth. I'm joined with Ben Wheaton, and we are gonna talk about Merovingian Gaul, which is probably two words you've never heard of. Maybe the second one. So we'll get into what that is exactly. But as we get going, Ben, can you introduce yourself to us? Hi, my name is Ben Wheaton.
1: I um, earned a PhD in Medieval Studies from the University of Toronto in 2018. And my research area focuses on theology and society in late antiquity with a special focus on the um, Gallic poet Venantius Fortunatus and his world at
0: the end of the sixth century. So we should talk about fortune, uh, We should talk about him at one point too. I think that'd be interesting. We should. Um, so I think it might be useful. So we're talking about Merovingian uh, Gaul. So sometime after around, around 500 is kind of where that period begins. Is that correct? Clovis and all that kind of stuff. 450, technically 450. speaking,
1: is when Clovis's father sort of 450 to 750, okay. generally
0: speaking, the dates when the
1: dynasty um, is considered to have existed. Although, yeah, I mean, so um, Clovis's father, who was, uh, oh, I forget his name now. He wasn't technically speaking, I mean, he was king of the Franks, but it was. Um, the Franks were at this point still um, allies of the Romans, Roman allies. And so not, it was sort of, I wouldn't really call it, they weren't really kings of Francia in, in, in a meaningful sense.
0: Mm-hmm. More like chieftains or something like that. But Yeah, but anyway,
1: 450
0: about, but say, well, 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 end well, of the
1: 5th, beginning of the 6th okay. century.
0: And so... Gaul is the geographic area. It's kind of roughly France and spills all over. France and West and West Germany. So the west whole Germany. area
1: west of the Rhine.
0: Hmm. And there would be probably a number of languages, but Latin, I'm sure, would be a primary one, at least in the south. Yeah, that, Latin.
1: I mean, at by, by this point, the Celtic languages, the Gallic Celtic languages had, had mostly died out. And so you have vulgar Latin being the language of the people on the whole.
0: And so it might be useful to just set the stage like, so 450 to 500, um, you have things happening that you might, more people might've heard of. So in 381, you have the Council of Constantinople. Right. In um, was it 452, the Council of Chalcedon? Um, is that right? I feel like that's wrong as I'm saying. What's the year? Well,
1: 451 is Chalcedon.
0: Okay, that's what I was, in you know, 451, yeah. Um. Yeah. So you, you have these, kind of things going on in the world. So these are not like far away realities. No. Uh, in this area of the world, probably in the 400s, it's mostly broadly the kind of Arian theology at this time. Is that? Nope, not
1: nope. 400s. Okay. 400s, you're, you have the Christological disputes. Okay. You do have Arians. You do have the Arianism, but only because the Germanic tribes were a particular brand of Arianism called Homoianism. Yeah,
0: that's kind of what I was Arianism. trying to get at. So, so what was that again, the, the
1: name of it? Hermoyen Arianism. Hermoyen, okay, yeah. So the, so the question is whether we should use the term Arianism right. at all for the number of things, but it's, I think it's a fine overall term if just if provided you um, clarify what you mean. And Homoyan Arianism is the standard um, uh, Trinitarian theology of the emperor held held in the 4th century under Valens, in early 5th century under Valens, the emperor of Valens in the East. And it was under the emperor of Valens that missionaries Went out to convert the Germanic tribes, who at this point living in kind of the Balkan areas, and so they naturally adopted the official theology of the um, empire at the time. Hmm. And so it was Homoianarianism, which held that Christ was not homoousios but not homoousios but Homoios, which is actually an, an even more radical support,
0: subordinationist mm-hmm. thing than uh, than homo-usius. So, yes. anyway, the point the is, is the German is like the father. So, right. um, it, to to like it.
1: substance. They wouldn't right. they wouldn't even say same stuff. Okay. So like, but not even like substance.
0: So as a taxonomy, you might say there's the homoousians who would say the father and the son are consubstantial, the share essence. Then right above that you might have a uh, homo Homoousia, which is they are like uh one another in all ways, which is is actually still orthodox.
1: Well, they are they are a like substance.
0: They're like substance, or like, well, yeah, there's different ways of putting it, I think.
1: Same substance, homoousios. Yeah. But homoousios, like substance. Right. So there's a distinction here. That's the, that's the joke about okay, the whole, okay, everything yeah. turning around an, an iota. But Homoyan Arianism is different.
0: Still. Right. Yeah, that's, it's, again, so it's for more
1: radical subordinations. Okay. But by this point, whether it was, I mean, and they certainly had their arguments. So you, so you actually have um, records, well, sort of records, but we do have uh, theological materials, apologetics handbooks and the like being written, containing rote arguments against um, uh, Hermoianianism and the kind of rote responses and kind of thing like that. So, so um, the Germans, but whether, how much of the Germanic church was actually, was actually Hermoian is, I mean, yes, it was officially Hermoian, but then you have many of their hangers on or not. And it was, it was a fluid situation, fluid spiritual situation, you could say.
0: So there was diversity.
1: You have the official Nicene church which in Gaul was, you know, dominant, was, was was the majority. And then you have the kind of, then you have Moyens, Arianism of the, of the Germans. And then you kind of have people who are like, well, you know, there's one God who's all, who's all sovereign and whatever. Well, you kind still of the probably of the have... Story for example.
0: I assume there'd be still some sort of paganism around at this time too.
1: A few pagans, but more sort of pagan rites were more popular.
0: But... Um, and
1: that you still do pagan thing like you still you know make sure you propitiate the local spirits of the bog or whatever uh, the lake and but i mean whether or not that's more a sort of like or you know produce sacrifices in the local sacred tree kind of thing whether or not that was official paganism was another mm. question probably some of it was but so, a lot so of it was just sort of syncretism
0: so at this time let's say around 500 how, how much is it is it culturally roman versus culturally, I don't know, tribal, or like, what's tribal the, what, what's what? Well, I don't know, like, there's, I know, there's various tribes and groups that were up in, in Europe at that time, like, is it, is it a very Roman cultures, Roman cities, do people dress like Romans? Yeah, what's it feel like? Well,
1: they're just like late Romans,
0: like, yeah. late. I mean, Roman. southern
1: Gaul, especially was very Roman, don't forget.
0: Yeah. Um, the area
1: Provence. um, It was very Roman. So in that, and it had been for hundreds of years. Hmm. Um, for many hundreds of years. So, you know, you have Marseille, um, Massilia as being the, as being, you know, a Greek colony, which was one of the earliest Roman allies in the time of the Republic. And then, so that's, and they, you know, and Caesar's veterans were settled in land in Southern, in in, in Provence. And so you have a very Romanized, incredibly Romanized, and, and it remains so um, long into the Merovingian period. I think and it's... so, but more Northern, you have less Romanized, but that's simply because It was always less Romanized, but, but it's all very Romanized. The point is it's it's Roman culture, Latin languages. So the, like with the disappearance of the Celtic languages too, it's all Latin. It's all, most of it's at least superficially Christian. And so, and and all the, you'll hear about all the political machinations, so on and so forth. It's all Roman, like even the Germanic tribes, um, where had been Roman federates, Roman allies for Many, many years by this point, and they you know aspire to be like the Romans.
0: It's and you might remind me like in the 400s, there's there's a number of bands that are moving through Europe, coming down south. Um, some make it to North Africa, some make it to the to Italy. Are, are these? these yeah. wh- where are they coming from? Are they coming from further east or are they part of the same group? What is coming from further east? So
1: yeah. depends. I mean, this is a big discussion. Where did they come the Vandals from? Where, well. where did the Franks come from? Who were the Franks? Yeah. I mean, we don't, it's not nearly so set as we think. Probably near, basically, a lot of them probably came from tribes near in, living near the Rhine,
0: just okay. east of the Rhine. So kind of like modern Germany, rough. Yeah. Yeah. Saxony. So the Saxons came from Right.
1: Um and the Franks probably around just, just around the Rhine area. And then you have um sort of certain steppe tribes. The Huns, for example, are a tribe from the steppes, say um, oh, maybe. East of Poland, West Russia kind of thing, moving westward. That's frequently happened throughout every mm-hmm. every few centuries. You have some. So, so would, would these tribes coming have,
0: west? Would they be Christian at all? Or are they?
1: No, no, no. outside weren't.
0: of the orbit entirely.
1: Yeah. Um, so the Huns were actually, Germans were sort of, you know, well-known. Well, not well-known, but reasonably well-known. Huns were sort of. Right. They're, they're more. But then also, of course, they would gather lots of other people around them, too. So when we talk of barbarian tribes, we talk not just of particular national groups or nations, but of ethnic groups, we mean also people who kind of joined in with them afterwards. So, So in some ways, the great cultural change we see is much more, at least in terms of the aristocracy, is is a militarization of the the aristocracy, as opposed to um, a Germanization of it.
0: So is that, when you think about like the, the population of people that might be in Gaul in the 400s, Mm-hmm. Would they be people who have migrated with part of these, like, moving? no, not at all.
1: Vast majority would be, would be,
0: um, people living there. Who you, just, always there. you just think of, think Romans basically. Yeah. Gallic Romans, but yeah. Gallic-Romans. Gallic-Romans. Yeah. But people yeah. who would identify it, speak Latin, think of themselves yeah. as, as Roman under the yep. sort of, yeah. Okay. Very
1: much so. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, the, the Germanic tribes were not that we're not, we're not large. Okay, just that they were the army. So.
0: so I think that kind of the two famous earlier figures that are in this area. is it. So Lugdunum, you have um, Irenaeus or Leon. Um, Irenaeus
1: was uh, third. Was third. Was he? In the third century.
0: Uh, no, second century. Was second Although century. Oh, I guess he yeah, might very, have lived in
1: the two hundreds. I'm not sure. Very early. I'm, I'm very early. Going yeah. And up on that in Greek-speaking, of course, as we're most yeah. communities in the West.
0: And then, Korea. then after him, you have uh, Hilary of Poitiers in the 300s, you do, and so you, you do have this sort of traditional, strong uh, tradition of Christianity through these guys. I don't know how broad that would be, but you do have this these these big yeah. names that are out there. Um, is it Martin of Tours as well? I think in the oh 400s? yeah, Martin 400s is that right? Martin hmm? is he in the 400s? Martin of Tours? Yeah, he's in the 400s. Sure. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because so, he, yeah, definitely, and a very speak, big figure in the yeah. uh, saints um in the veneration of his very big saint later on mm-hmm. very mm-hmm.
0: important in the Merovingian period especially is he okay well let's let's jump into that then so okay define the Merovingian period so uh, is my 450
1: to 750 450 the
0: Merovingian f- Franks, so the Merovingian
1: um Frank's were specifically de- de- descended from let me just have a look here um found um, Childeric. There we go. Childeric first. He actually we actually found his tomb. Um mm. in a church. We archaeologist, but um very famous in the 18th, 19th century, actually, they found his tomb. Childeric. And uh Childeric, his son was Clovis, and he so he was Childeric was sort of um the leader of the Franks. And the you could say him, they call him the king of the Franks, but they probably took that. But they didn't, Franks didn't initially have a king, but then kind of, you know, you come in more organized, you start to have, okay, we're going to have a guy king drawn again from Roman models. Um, And then you, so then his son was Clovis and it was during this time of Childeric and later Clovis, when you had the breakup of the Western Roman empire. And, and so they were able to found their kingdom as it were in the north and the east. So the Merovingian Franks always had considerable territory east of the Rhine, unlike the Roman Empire. Um, and then gradually, as the fifth, 6th century went on, the late part of the 5th and early part of the 6th, of the you had them gradually spreading west and south. Hmm. Um, and through a variety of, but this was, in some ways, you shouldn't look upon it as, um, as sort of a foreign tribe creating a kingdom and then and then conquering new lands, I mean, new lands were conquered, but as much as you have Roman allies, Roman federates um, quarreling over um, who gets what. And also it played, it was important, um, these civil wars in the late 5th and 6th century had a big part in um, politics in Italy itself. So the sort of the last years of the emperors in the West, um, their civil wars were, Carried on by proxy in Gaul as well. So the Franks and the Saxons were allies of one imperial claimant, whereas the Goths and the Suevi were allies of another imperial claimant. And so, whether or not how, how things went in Italy was as much a determiner um, of the of, of who fought whom as it was uh, as it mm. was personal ambition. All that certainly played a big role. So the end of the dissolution. The Franks gradually, until finally, in um, 511. Um, you have a big battle at Bouillet, which is in sort of central France. And um, when they defeated uh, the Visigothic forces and their allies, and the, Vis- and the Visigoths were f- were people who settled, were a Germanic tribe that settled in southern Gaul and later Spain. And, but they, of course, but the allies, anyway, it's complicated. But that's, that's fair to say that, um, Eventually, the Franks take all of Gaul by 530. But again, that's connected as well with the imperial, with, with imperial politics, because the Eastern Empire at this point was trying to, was reinvading Italy, and the Ostrogoths in Italy were decided to give their Gallic territories to the Franks so they could spend more attention trying to fight the Byzantines. Well, anyway,
0: fun-
1: it's really, okay. it's it's a big... It's fascinating history but it's complicated. So the point is the Gaul the Franks eventually conquer all of Gaul and parts of northern Spain. Okay. And eastern the Rhine. So basically their the Frankish kingdom is the largest and wealthiest in the west by the mid 6th century.
0: And if I understand this right, eventually this kingdom once it changes dynasties will become like Charlemagne will come out of it basically.
1: That's right. Well, eventually in the 8th century the mayors of the palace the the chief sort of um servants of the merovingian kings eventually they become kings because they they become the king. so then mm. you have the pippinids named after their founder pippin <laughs> who eventually takes over um the merovingian kings to decide rather than rather than having a figurehead of merovingian just you know become king yourself and so that's eventually what they did and so then you
0: have charlemagne just to kind of push the the whole kind of pictures for um for listeners so charlemagne becomes eventually crowned as the holy Roman yep. emperor Christmas day
1: 800 the
0: easiest date in history Christmas day 800 sure. and that same empire I know it's a bit different is around even during the, the Reformation and with the Habsburgs. well
1: not no. you know, um the, the Carolingian Empire, Okay. Is different from the and then you have the Ottonian Empire. Right. Okay. And then you have because the Carolingian yeah, you know, Empire is still centered in France, don't
0: forget. Yeah, it's like but the it's half much of died. Germany. Okay.
1: But it also most of France. Whereas um later the the Ottonians founded it in centered in Germany, what is today Germany. Okay. And Central Europe. And same thing with the later Holy Roman Empire is Germany.
0: Effective, effective. Effectively, yeah. So I mean, I guess the 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 name still kind of persists. There's this idea of a Holy Roman Empire, yeah. yeah. Um, the sort like the of claim. identity. So, it's great. kind of interesting. Um, but I guess Charlemagne, when you think about the Merovingian uh empire or whatever uh, that that I think if you're French, you would kind of feel like this is like Charles de Gaul kind of traces France back to um, Clovis,
1: not just Charles the it's Back in nineteenth century, it's oh, a very okay. big. Deal.
0: Okay, um, Clo-
1: Clovis being the um, founder of the French nation, French first king of France. Clovis. Oh, interesting. And so, now, so um,
0: he's a Hamoyan, but his wife—he's not Hamoyan. He's not Hamoyan. Okay, we
1: don't know what he was exactly. Oh, he just he may okay. have been just kind of one of these uh, vague men, men men of politics who say, eh, "You know, um, there's one god." Yeah, he may have been. I don't think he was Hamoyan. Gregory of Tours, 6th century historian, thinks he was a pagan, but he certainly was not. Oh. <laughs> he also probably wasn't Himoian, and he also probably wasn't, certainly wasn't Nicene Catholic. He was kind of neutral, you might say, and deciding what eventually, eventually his decision to be baptized as in the Nicene church was, again, sincere. I'm sure he, um, it's probable that he was perfectly sincere about it as well, but also it was um, a good idea when you're if you want to rule the mostly Nicene people. But, um, but again, it was. But I still think was sincere. I think there were a variety of options he had. Basically, okay. He was deciding what to do. You know, but this, again, the spiritual landscape was murky.
0: And it's it's his uh, wife who is credited with his conversion.
1: Right? Yeah, his wife um, is credited by most of the people at the time for convincing him to become a Christian. This actually happened quite a bit. Um, you find in, so in Kent, for example, um, when when uh, Augustine of Canterbury went, there was a Frankish princess who had been married, Bertha, to uh, one of the Kentish kings, and she was Catholic, or Nicene, um, I'll say for the purposes of clarity. Catholic is the usual term, but we mean small c, Catholic, we mm. mean Nicene. Um, and uh, she brought with her a bishop, basically. Um, so that's signing but this. Yeah, basically you marry a Catholic princess and same thing happened in Spain as my article mentioned. Hmm. You so were to convert? Slightly more bitter results. And, uh, but the point is, yeah. So but marrying um, Catholic princes, same thing happened with the Lombards too. Again, it was a very common thing to do. And frequently these um, women were formidable and uh, Christ succeeded in persuading their husbands to convert.
0: So what, so we talked about Martin of Tours. Um, what would Christianity look and feel like? Like, what are the patterns and practices? Uh, do you have like icon veneration? Is it a big no, deal this icon time? icon veneration initially, no. So, so like, what, is it, what does it feel like?
1: Well, for one thing, um, well, it depends what you want to talk about. Um, we could talk about it, the various, the, the official rites of the church. Okay. Talk about the Merovingian church. As um, focused, you had the very you had the varying feast days. Okay. So Easter, for example, the, was the start the this great start of um, a great high point of the Christian year when you had the baptisms. Again, a lot of it's simply late Roman Christianity, Nicene Christianity. So again, baptism once a year. um You got the and the catechumens being it was still it was a mix. I mean. By the sixth century, you had increasing infant baptism as being the norm. Uh, but uh, the fifth, you had more sort of formality of being baptized at um, a vowel baptism being still or late, late old age baptism. So you wouldn't sin and thereby lose your salvation. Um, but uh, so in other words, we have a lot of texts which will assume that Adults are being catechized before baptism mm-hmm. being taught. So you have, but by the sixth century, that's starting to die out, but you still have some of these, but you still have the forms
0: remaining. So so just kind of repeat. So you have a once year baptism, which is on Easter, correct?
1: Yes. Technically speaking, people were supposed to be baptized on Easter.
0: And you'd be a catechumen. Um, you could be a catechumen throughout the year, learn the mysteries of the faith.
1: Yeah.
0: You get baptized. Is it kind of like the older version of baptism, men and women separate? You basically get, down to your underclothes. Yeah. Oh yeah, all, all the all, all the pictures stuff. of both being baptized have been naked. Yeah. One of the, uh, it might be just useful to, I'm sure no one knows about this, who's, well, few people would, but uh, these really baptismal things are really interesting that you have, because you have men and women deacons and the women deacons baptize the women and the men deacons baptize the men. They're in undergarments or whatever. Now, I don't know if it's all like that all the time, but Kind of one I, of the... Sometimes, sometimes that was the case. Um,
1: I, I would say that that's more. I would say that's more of an Eastern thing.
0: Deaconesses
1: oh. were, persisted longer in their Eastern Church. Okay. And yeah, many long after then, in the Western Church, when deaconesses existed, up, up in the sixth century, but they tended, but then they tend to be subsumed into the um, into the female convents, the female religious orders. Oh. Okay. So um, one very famous uh, figure, uh, Radigund of Thuringia. Who was a famous founder of a monastery of a, a convent um, in the sixth century was ordained as a deaconess, okay. but she persuaded her bishop to do so. But that was sort of the one, that one of the last ones that was done, and it was abnormal. Interesting. But but the point is, baptism was done again, mostly done, but by the end of the sixth century, it was mostly infant baptism.
0: That's so interesting history that the because early on, it's really clear there are women deacons. It's just oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Just super. Like I guess I am thinking more of the the fourth century kind of. Eastern rites, that's what oh, yeah. I know a bit better. But yeah,
1: east again, the Eastern churches yeah. had deaconesses and still have, them, frankly, um, far more than the Western church. So again, by the fifth, by the sixth century, deaconesses in the Western church mm-hmm. were being incorporated into um, the female religious orders.
0: So, so would you still, like in the West, would you at this time be baptized outside of the, the church building and then you'd be brought indoors or would you you'd be baptized?
1: No, you'd be baptized okay. inside. You'd have a baptismal font okay so there's a picture of so we have you know paintings and so this in this kind of font mm-hmm. and then he'd be in the font up to his chest in water and then they pour water over you oh it was pouring it.
0: yeah and then you'd
1: be given the white robes of
0: the okay way. and then would you proceed at that point into would you receive the eucharist at that point i'm not sure okay i'm not so a big I'm guy in liturgy but of- this might be an early one. Basically, I don't know if you'd necessarily be outdoor, but they might have a, a male and female area where you would be baptized. And then you'd be then you'd proceed into the main area where you would experience the Eucharistic gift. That's but quite you, possible. Yeah, um, it could also be an Eastern right thing. Too. It could be. Yeah, that's
1: I just um, I but the West did some stuff too. So but the point is, okay, so you have your, you have your, you have your yeah. baptismal right, you have your feast days, which you were, um, which people like to attend. Um, you had uh, the Eucharist again, you you had it fairly frequently. Um, again, you had to have it required once a year at Easter, but you mostly most of the time you did it much more frequently than that. Um, especially if you were um, in the church itself, hmm. have it almost sometimes. Some people
0: advocate having it every day. Were there processions that were common on feast days at this time? Yes, yes there were. Yeah, and would you take the Eucharist during during that as well? At the end during the service at the
1: end of it. Yeah. Okay,
0: um, and then you'd have.
1: And then a very big, and then you, so, but then you, but mostly, you know, still Sunday services were again, the foundation, the core of the Christian life sort of thing. But what's interesting is remember Christianity in the West, at least at first was very much a city centered faith. Hmm. I know people say that's also in the East. It's not so much in the East actually. Increasingly I'm seeing people view saying Christianity had more of a rural population than you think in the third and fourth century, but anyway, My point is that in the West, at least, it was city center, in part because it came to the West in the cities from Greeks, from Greek speakers. Um, And then so you have the big, so you have the great great cathedrals in the cities, and that's what the bishops were. And the bishops in the the late 5th and early 6th centuries, and the bishops were the ones who could preach the sermons. Mm. Priests were ordinarily, until the beginning of the 6th century, not allowed
0: to preach sermons of their own. Oh, that's an, that's an interesting distinction. Yeah. So bishops were the ones who preached. It's funny that and, like sorry, go on. And
1: then um this started to change and it changed in the beginning of the sixth century. A man by the name of caesarius of Arles, who was bishop of Arl, um and a very powerful um and influential cleric, uh changed this and said a, a number of church councils did him this time saying no uh, priests can preach provided they preach from a set from a from a pre from a sermons which have been provided to them from the fathers and from our own people so you have homilaries collections of sermons being very popular around this time so that priests could preach to their parishioners there was big concern of part of and his, and his fellows to um teach the ordinary christian in the as well in the cities but also in the countryside about the faith too so you have this big emphasis on preaching. Um in the chap in the local chapels and in as well as in the cities and in the rural urban areas everywhere.
0: Would the homilaries be because a lot of the priests maybe didn't have sufficient education or ability or orthodoxy perhaps. <laughs> well, that was certainly a concern. So the priests were, did not have the education
1: to write their own sermon. Um, so they would use people from sermons from people who were sufficiently educated to write them. Mm -hmm. and they also yes it was also a means of ensuring orthodoxy
0: yeah
1: Um, because again you didn't have the time to read the great complicated treatises and even florilegia which is collections of short excerpts from books were again they were they'd be in the cities and priests um basically so basically you have so from the carolingian era we have priest handbooks which contain a few key sermons some canon law and a few other small things like that. Um, and you would, and you, I mean, and you use this for and stuff. But usually, but priest, main education of a priest was learning the Psalms by her. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And along with a few other things, but you could read the sermons mm. that were sent out and they were encouraged them to do
0: this. So do we have uh, accessible records of like an order of service? Like what it would actually look like when you came in, would there be set prayers? We set have prayer? liturgies, yes. Um, I
1: I'm not sure. I couldn't say much about about them. I guess not really my
0: okay ex- expertise in it. I do know. Oh, <sighs> if there would have oh, Gregorian chants. Pardon? The big Gregorian chants at this time? Not Gregorian chants. No.
1: You'd have singing the psalms. Interesting.
0: Um. No
1: Gregorian chants come later. It's a different. Are there
0: the 600s that start coming in? Yeah, oh,
1: yeah. yeah, um, or even later than a um, um, much later Gregory. Okay, I think, or something like that. Um,
0: oh, I could be totally wrong,
1: it. but no, I mean, they it would sound like it, to us it would sound like a Gregorian chant because you didn't have polyphony, um, mm. in the Christian rites until much later. Okay, um, but so yeah, um, another big part of it. So the sermons were a big part of it. Um, you'd have. Singing the psalms, you'd have the prayers and responses, and you would have, you know, incense. So the basilicas. But one interesting thing about late antique Christianity, even Western Christianity, um, in Gaul in late fifth, early sixth century, is that it was much, in some ways, it was surprisingly informal. Not in the sense of the liturgy not being formal, but in the sense of during the sermon, you'd have You're not in like a church with a nave some places were this way, but usually big cities, cathedrals were basilicas. which means you'd have the preacher being surrounded by the congregation or having the congregation much closer to him. And so what you'd have sometimes, and these were very kind of almost interactive. So the people in the audience would be, um, could be disruptive quite frequently, whether it's, you know, catcalling, or um, challenging the preacher, or um, or other things like that, or transacting business where they weren't supposed to be transacting business anyway, it was it?
0: So, this right. is a really interesting point. So, I was reading something this morning on on Origin of Alexandria, and this is one of his problems too, that in church, people will just be talking, ignoring the sermon, and it's interesting when you get the Reformation, it's the exact same problem, like... Yeah, well, people just don't sit down and pay attention. They're there, but they're not listening. They're doing their own things. Fights break, out, fight breakout. out, fights break out, dogs bark. It's it's kind of wild because we're used to, I think, at least in Canada, a sort of quiet church experience. Uh as far as I understand in church history, that's that was never well, true. you've ever
1: been in a Pentecostal church, have you?
0: Well, okay, there you go. <laughs> I guess there would be the but I suppose I'm thinking of uh when someone's talking, yeah, there it's relatively quiet meaning people are respectful enough to listen but that's historically it doesn't seem to be the case normally indeed by the way i looked it up so gregory the great who you know from gregorian chants it is early but it might be legendary that he invented them so i know they came popular later on yeah so it's later on when i for some reason i just assumed that that tradition was actually him but i guess who knows
1: could be um there's lots Um, of gregory's sometimes Gregory. Sometimes there'd be another Gregory, but he. But later generations would say it's actually Gregory the Great instead so this other Gregory. Okay, so, it's, yeah. so this happened a lot actually. So a lot of Gregory of Tours, great historian, has some of his religious parts. Um, parts of his, so sort of he has dialogues between Arias, Arians, and Christians in his history, and sometimes they'd be excerpted in Carolingian texts for sermons. Hmm. Um, but they'd be ascribed to Gregory to Gregory the Great.
0: So, Merovingian Christian life—you uh, do have the the larger, probably cathedral buildings, but you also have smaller, medium places. It's more chapels. interactive chapels. Yep. And at this time, you mentioned there's going to be orders being developed. So there's um, female and male orders, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. And that's where a lot of—I don't know what the right word to be like Christian ministry happens. I suppose you could say it that way.
1: Uh, in some cases, um, usually. So there was the two. Orders of, so the two parts of the clergy were the secular clergy and the religious clergy. Secular clergy being the bishops and priests and deacons, and religious clergy being the abbots and the monks of various kinds and, and nuns. Um, and you have some work done, but again, they were interact. there were certainly lots of interaction with the surrounding communities, not always to the good. I think of a number of times when. Um, you had a uh, royal, disruptive royals being sent to them, being sent to confinement in monasteries and causing trouble there. Um, <laughs> times in the sixth century.
0: Uh, sorry, just a memory popped up. It's a little bit later on in history. Um, there's a predestination controversy, I think in the eight hundreds. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the main figures whose name escapes me at the second, something. Of yeah, Chuck of yeah. He gets forcibly tonsured <laughs> if I remember. Right. So they, they bring him into a monastery and, and cut his hair.
1: That's right. Uh, but that, that's more common. Yeah, To be taught, he taunts. So basically it says this king, his son rebelled against him, captured his son, has him tauntured and sent to a monastery.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like a, a I guess, semi-prison. <laughs> it's like, if you don't want to be there, you're going kind of have to be if you're an insignificant yeah, royal well, figure. It's a
1: confinement.
0: It's, it's a um, fascinating thing. Because, you know, I don't know, in my mind, I think of it more of a, of a voluntary society. But I think when, when you swear your vow, maybe you could clarify on this, like it's, Really you read the
1: rule of St. Benedict once they let you in and you have a one year of complete freedom. You can go and come as you please. But after that one year and you're fully accepted, can't leave. Mm-hmm. Or if you do, you can, but it's going to take a while and you have to endure a couple of beatings. Okay. It could but kind of no, but it's you you very, a very, very serious matter. Habit or... yeah. Okay. Um, But also I will say that in the Carolingian era, It was more popular. Most monasteries were populated by children who were brought there as very young, as oblates.
0: Mm -hmm. And that's a way to get this kind of taken care of, probably. Or to fulfill a vow,
1: yeah, something like that. Um, um, Samuel's dedication to the temple was used as a a model in many ways. Yeah. Um, And so, but this this died out in a few, it's only lasted for a few centuries before it tended to Mm -hmm. uh, issues. So, um, with
0: that in, in terms of theology so i i kind of like so i know things up till about 450 and then it's like a blank until about 800 but in the 800s you have uh issues on the eucharist you have oh yeah or argues arguments on the presence or lack of or yeah. the means of presence you have tons of arguments So gutcher would be one i believe he's forcibly tantra that's in my, my memory but he's arguing about predestination theories augustine all that kind of stuff uh yeah. what is the th- like, what's the theological world of the Merovingian Gaulish Church? Like, what are the things that are important to them or significant?
1: Well, so um, if you want to talk about the theology of it, um, you know, Orthodox Nicene theology, um, heavily um, influenced by the by the fathers. By um, so, you talk about predestination, for example. Hmm. There was the Council of Orange, which took place in um, five twenty nine. Which was about grace and free will. There was a major controversy, part a big part of the grace of, of the of the. I guess you can say semi Pelagian controversy for lack of a better term.
0: Hmm. I guess
1: one of those things like Arian that is imprecise but is useful anyway. Um, that took place. Um, so Augustine's last two books on predestination, the De Predestinatione and the De Perseverantia, and on the perseverance of the saints, were written in response to. Um, clerics in southern Gaul, Prosper of Aquitaine, was being one of them. Um, about questions related to grace and free will, and so grace and so the questions of grace and free will were very were matters of big controversy because you had at least in the, in the monastic world a sense of um, opposition. While they opposed Pelagianism. They were nonetheless of the um, of the opinion that um, Augustine, especially in his later writings, was too lax against people who sinned. Oh, against sin, they felt that um, it was important not to act as if you couldn't fall away by sinning. No matter what you, you could do what you like. So interestingly, one of the um, tenets of a semi-Pelagian council which took place was those who deny fire and hell, let them be anathema. Well, that's almost surprising to me. Yes. They were concerned that especially certain more radical predestinarians, uh, more, more radical than Augustine even, were of the opinion that no matter what you did, if God chose you, um, or if you were a Christian, you couldn't, no matter what you did, you wouldn't go to hell.
0: Oh, okay, okay, I see, I see. Okay, so and, but to it's the extent, more the, to the warning that, side, okay.
1: Yeah, so there's some There is some notion around here that uh, I've heard some areas that popular idea of insofar as, as Pelagians are thought of as all as part of being some nice lovey-dovey people, as opposed to the fire and brimstone preachers that they actually were. Um, but no, but, like, but they have concerned about that. But also they, especially in the monasteries, the whole point of going to a monastery Was to pursue a purity of heart to obtain eternal life, Hmm. and if if it was the whole, it was the environment that was important. Now they insisted upon the upon the necessity of grace as well, but they were of the opinion that um, grace um, that you still need to that the the urgency of pursuing holiness was Mm -hmm. um, vitiated by um, Augustine's later works.
0: Man, maybe I mean and this is super inaccurate, but like if you think of it today, you might think of like Calvinists and Wesleyans so have a different emphasis on in some ways, yeah. Um, yeah. To think through it. No, so really you t- got t- someone like
1: John Cassian who okay. wrote his book, The Conferences, who is writing us at the same time as Augustine. Augustine's last works, and in fact, one of them was in response. One of his chapters was in response to oh, Augustine's De Protestantia, and basically saying. Um, grace is necessary, he sounds a lot like Augustine in his first sort of 12 chapters, then the 13th chapter comes along, and he opposes Augustine, saying, yes, grace is necessary at all points, yes, it's all this stuff, but God calls people through different means, and um, some people have a spark, and then God blows it into a flame, some people have no spark whatsoever, and God needs to come in, so he's kind of both things happen. You, you know, quote from scripture, various examples of people, some people mm-hmm. who who seek God, other people who need to be sought by God kind of thing. So, A concern with this, Prosper wrote a whole book against it, um, against Cassian's 13th conference, his 13th chapter, okay. saying the problem with this is that this makes Christians into two different grades of people, people who need to be sought by God and people who do not need to be sought by God. Hmm. Um, That was his big concern. But again, Caesarion also was a distinction between the secular clergy who needed to preach to large numbers of people who were not in monasteries and therefore could need to have some hope that they could be saved. And the people in monasteries who said, hope of our being here is to pursue holiness. So there was was a certain amount of social um, difference in in how people approach grace, especially of grace and free will as well. Hmm. So Caesarius of Arles, who was who had um, gotten instruction in one of the main monasteries um, in the Isles of Lorraine in southern France, um, where Cassian was, was also one of the great champions of Augustinianism. Oh. And he sound he's very, very austere is the term the scholarly term used um, in some ways. Other ways he's not so much. So Council of Orange, um, which condemned some Pelagianism in five twenty nine didn't put forward as the baseline a full augustinian position either they basically said god calls people unconditionally but once you've been baptized you need to work until you do so until until so basically you're called to baptism but you're predestined to baptism you're not necessarily predestined to salvation to ultimate salvation interesting so but, but again whether this was this was a baseline this is this was a compromise um, and it may have just been a baseline saying so you have to believe at least this but lots of people including Venantius Fortunatus believe very much in predestination to ultimate salvation as well. So who is and Fortunatus? that God's grace was necessary at all times
0: so can you I know you, you did your dissertation but on him but who is Fortunatus like who who is this guy? I don't really know who he is I mean maybe I've heard of him but I so Venantius Fortunatus, yeah. Um,
1: Benantius Clementianus Honorius was born in northeastern Italy okay. around 530 or 540 and moved, was educated in Ravenna, was classically educated in, in Ravenna, and moved north around 565 or 566 to Gaul to get for better opportunities for patronage. He was a poet, wanted to work as a poet and since the Franks since um, Merovingian Gaul was not only more peaceful than Italy at this point in time, it was also far richer. And so um, the kings, in other words, could afford such things as poets, whereas the um, various few warring factions in, in Italy were more concerned with bashing each other over the head. So he moved north and wrote a wide, he was a poet first and foremost. He left to us 12 books of poetry. Okay. Um, most of it in praise poetry to bishops and to kings and princes and lords of various kinds. He was a, you would call a literateur. He was um, a poet, and he got patrons from from various people. He got patronage from various people. Um, eventually, he settled. He was a secular poet, we would say, though so he was probably ordained in the lower orders, whether deacons or what have you, around. And uh, sometime, some point middle age. Anyway, he settled in Poitiers and was worked closely with Radigan of Thuringia, who was there. He um, was also close friends with Gregory of Tours, the great historian in the late sixth century, and Bishop of Tours. And he wrote poems for him, wrote poems for Radigan. Um, so it's very, he is the second largest body of text we possess from the sixth century in the West.
0: Hmm.
1: Gregory of Tours is the first. So from late sixth century Merovingian Gaul, we have two massive corpuses uh, for these two guys, um, a poetry, letters, hagiographies, for saints lives, um, histories, all sorts of things. And he was, he's very, he's probably the most sophisticated, um, the educated man in Gaul at this, um, by the end of the sixth century. And eventually he became Bishop of Poitiers and um died around 600 610 or so hmm.
0: um,
1: so and he was the guy who i said and he but he, during when he's bishop he preached a, he preached a couple of sermons one on the apostles creed one on the lord's prayer and in the there's a sermon on the lord's prayer he goes off on this extended rant um about uh, grace and free will and how um grace is absolutely necessary in every single aspect of any kind of good we do kind of
0: thing hmm. well as we um kind of bring our time to an end i think it might be useful to ask you this are, are there good editions of these authors primarily in english that we can find and read because i'm i it's, i'm listening to you and i i feel like there's like this i have this black hole in my view of history yeah. i have no idea about a lot of this stuff like i know Bits, but
1: yeah. So I will say the sixth century is one of the best centuries for writing in the early Middle Ages okay in, in antiquity. We have this, we have some of the we have the most the greatest number of texts surviving from that period. So the seventh century and fifth century are kind of they have stuff, but sixth centuries where it's at. Okay, you've got histories, you have poetry, you have letters, you have hagiographies, you have canon law texts, you have. In speaking of councils, one of the greatest councils in the church, fifth. Fifth Ecumenical Council, Second Council of Constantinople, which is very interesting if you're interested in Chalcedon,
0: hmm.
1: um, Including the only really competent Roman emperor in theology, Justinian. Um, <laughs> but uh it was interesting, what's interesting is a huge number of texts. So Gregory Tour and Fanaticus Fortunatus both have translations of most of the, of their material. Um so there is a series called the Dumbarton Oaks. Um Series, which has facing page translations of many oh, early so like medieval. Like diglots,
0: things. you mean? Hmm? Like diglots, like one in Latin, one in English. Is that what you yes. mean by that? Okay. Yeah, okay.
1: facing page translation. Yeah. Okay.
0: Um. And one,
1: Vinantius Fortunatus's carmina, his poems, have just been published in translation. Oh wow. In the Barton Oak series, in, in their entirety. And Gregory of Tours, his histories, were translated back in the late seventies. It's not a very good translation. I mean, whenever <laughs> I read it, I always find myself finding ridiculous errors. But it's fun. It's a fun translation.
0: <laughs> That's a good way to describe it, I guess. Yeah,
1: good old Lewis Thorpe, who was an interesting man. Um, mm. But uh, yes, it's, and, it's, and it's a Penguin one, so it's not that expensive. Okay. Um, and then his uh, Gregory of Tours hagiographies and stuff are um, also in the Department series. Okay. So. So there's, yeah, so there's good translations of them, um, but, and also all the Latin is available for free online with the um, Monumenta Germania Historical Series.
0: Okay. Um, and now I guess you have a, a book coming out. I guess we can link it with Brill. Do you know, is that confirmed or is this? It's currently
1: under peer review. So it's going to okay. be a while. Never
0: mind then. Just kidding.
1: Um, I do have a book coming out. Oh, another okay. book coming out. Um, hopefully which is under copyed, being copy edited as we speak with Lexum Press. Okay. On the medieval atonement. Okay. That'll be up sooner. Probably okay. more, more interest to your uh, listeners.
0: Yeah, it could, it could be. Um, is that this year or next year? Do you know? Hopefully this year. I mean, okay. it's,
1: again, it's with the copy editor right now. So we'll, we'll see. Um, again, the book on book and brill is also very technical. Hmm. And I'm not sure it's not. If, if, if layman, if, if historical laymen want to read it, be my guest, but um, it has a lot of, there's a lot of uh, crit, uh, text, text critical stuff in it and um, other things. So it's, it's, it's meant for a specialist audience more.
0: Okay. Um,
1: whereas the book I'm running for Lexum is, is meant for uh, educated laymen, I said,
0: so. Okay. Well, thanks for teaching me a bunch of new things that I didn't know. (laughs) That was fun. (laughs) And uh, I think this is the first time we've met. Is that correct? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Okay. Well, it was a pleasure to meet you, Ben. Thank you so much for your time. You're
1: welcome.